wonderful. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 1 through 19. Verses 1 through 19, and as you're opening up there, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can open up to page 1238 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. You can grab that. It'll be the words should be on the screen as well, the, the verses. And uh, as you're opening there, let me just mention we've transitioned here in the Gospel of John. The first half of the Gospel of John, chapters really 1 through 10 and into 11, took place over the course of about three years. We think of the rest of John, beginning from the raising of Lazarus really until, uh, until the, the, the last chapter, happens in about a week. The bulk of the rest of what we're going to see happens in about a week. So if John is, is, is giving his gospel, half of his gospel to one week, I think that tells us what he and what the Holy Spirit finds most important about who Jesus is. So really, it's Easter here at First Baptist Church until Christmas. And uh, it's going to be the longest Holy Week we've ever had. And, uh, and, but we're excited to hear what the Lord has to say to his church. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to feast, to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and for his gospel. And God, today as we look at this anointing and this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, God, I pray that we would grant the Lord entry into our own hearts so that we might be changed by your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago now, we were on vacation on the South Carolina coast, a little island there called Fripp Island, F-R-I-P-P, Fripp Island. And we had a great time there. Some of y'all saw our pictures. You've mentioned uh, that you saw our pictures on social media and that kind of thing. We had a great time. We swam together and played golf and ate good food and just had a really good time together. But for me, and I'm the nerd of the family, in case you didn't know, um, which, you know, when you're the nerd of the family, that means you're the smart one, right? So anyway, uh, uh, the reality is I, I, I was a little sad on vacation. Because every day, every day we rode by a house that was close to the one that we rented. And every day when we rode by it, I was reminded of the fact that one of my favorite authors, a guy named Pat Conroy, is dead. He, he died a couple of years ago from cancer. And his summer home was on Fripp Island. And there it was, uh, right close to where we were. And we would ride by and I would just be reminded of the fact that Pat Conroy was dead. And I was sad because if he had been alive, my whole week would have spent scheming up ways to meet Pat Conroy. Been trying every day. I think, I think, I like to think that I would have just gone up, knocked on his door, figured out where he lived and asked him, I could say hello. Now, every now and again, not just on Fripp Island, but not just when we got to go to Beaufort, which is kind of his hometown in so many ways, every now and again, I, I just, anytime there's an author who's died in my lifetime, I'll remember that they're dead and I'll be sad, especially when I'm reading one of their books or think of one of their books or a story from one of their books. I'm sad about it. Now, I'm sad because Pat Conroy is dead because I love his books. I, 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 I love his books. Not only do I wish that he were around to write more novels, I think he was in the process of writing another novel, but also I never met him. I know some of you, we've talked about it before, I think his, his, his wife taught at Gaza State at one point, so some of you have met Pat Conroy, at least met her. But he's, here's the reality is, not only do I want more books, but I'm sad because I never met Pat Conroy. I never met the guy who's produced for me these hours of pleasure reading his books and these hours of reflection on his view of the world and the way he sees things. And I love his point of view. Let me ask you this question. Why are we excited to meet someone who made something we love? You ever thought about that? Why does that excite us? To meet someone that made something we love. You know, it seems like it ought to be enough just to love the thing, just to enjoy the book. But isn't there a side of us that wants to go to the signing, that wants to go to the concert, that wishes we could meet them? And how many of you in this room right now have got a story about somebody you met? Mine's not very good. I met Raven Simone in New York City. Talk about, you know, I, I met a celebrity in New York City. Really? Who was it? That's so Raven. I'm not very Raven, you know, so, so it just, it's not the best story. But anyway, I, I wish, you know, that I could have met. 
Pat Conroy. Why are we so excited to meet someone who made something we love? Listen to what Augustine says. Listen to this quote from Augustine. All things are precious because all are beautiful. But what is more beautiful than he? Strong they are, but what is stronger than he? If you seek for anything better, you will do wrong to him and harm to yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would willingly give himself to you. When he would willingly give himself to you. You see, the reality is that as good as the gifts are, even in this world, as beautiful and strong as the things are, even in this world, we really want to know the giver as well, as beautiful as a novel or a movie is, we want to meet the person behind it. You see, in this passage today, we're going to meet some people. We're going to encounter a few people, some who get it, but then many who miss the giver because they're so enamored with the gift. They're short-sighted, settling for less than what God offers. They're, they're doing uh, their their they're, they're doing harm to him and harm to themselves by preferring to him that which he made when Jesus is there ready, willing to give himself to them. This morning I want to show you three things about Jesus. Three truths that, that he's revealing to himself and those who he's around in this passage. Three truths about Jesus Christ that you can't miss. Three truths... I don't want you to miss three things you must know and three things then you must respond to. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Don't miss the supreme worth of Jesus. Don't miss the supreme worth of Jesus. This is one of the most famous passages in the Bible, we see it also in Matthew and Mark. I, I think that a similar occurrence happened to Jesus earlier in his ministry, and, and that's described in Luke's Gospel. So I do think there are two, uh, two instances of an anointing that happened in Jesus' ministry. But here I think John is giving us the same one that Mark and, and that Matthew give us. It's a, a, a famous passage. It's a passage that even for those of us who really don't agree with Judas on things, sometimes we wonder whether or not he might have had a point. Why was it that this such a costly thing, such a costly thing, representative of a, of a year's wages for a worker in these days, why would it be spilled out on Jesus this time? Verses 1 through 8 tell us the story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. In other words, Lazarus was dead just a day ago, right? Now he's here eating supper. It's kind of a, a cool picture. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You see, this 
ointment, this nard, was something that was imported from India, and it was very, very expensive, especially the amount that's given here, and, and each of the, the, the two synoptic writers and John all sort of quote Judas in saying that it was worth 300 denarii, so we have to assume that's accurate, and so that's something like a year's salary. They made something like a denarius a day in, in, a, a common worker would have, and so if you weren't extremely wealthy yourself, and that's possible. We don't know. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus might have been a very wealthy family. Otherwise, this is probably something like a family heirloom. This is something like, like a, a very extravagant purchase that someone made and it gets passed down. Or, or the one thing of value that you might own if you, were not, if you were not a very wealthy family. But even if you were wealthy, this is still a significant amount of money. You know, you think about the things that we buy that cost that amount of money. It's something like the cost of a vehicle or, or something like that. It's a really expensive, really extravagant ointment. And Judas says, of course, like I said, that it's worth 300 denarii, but John gives us some insight into Judas. Not that Judas really cared about the poor, but I guess later they come to find out Judas had been stealing money from the money bags. So if we, as we look at Mary, as we look at what Mary is doing here, what do we have to learn? Here's, here's what I think John wants us to know. The worth of Christ, the supreme worth of who Jesus is, His glory, His nature, who Christ is, ought to lead us to an intense and authentic devotion to Him. I, I think that Mary is displaying intense and authentic devotion there are a few things that characterize her devotion here's the first thing is sacrifice now as americans this is what we tend to think about the most isn't it that's what we tend to think about the most here in fact that's kind of the american quote how much does it cost right that's the primary thing that we're thinking about and here we recognize then that mary is making a sacrifice there's a lot of expense to this perfume and so as she is, is, in other Gospels we're told, she breaks the jar and uses all of it on, on Jesus. Matthew and Mark tell us that she anoints his head, and John tells us that she anoints his feet. So we get the idea, the whole picture from the Gospels, that, that she, she anointed all of him. She covered him in this perfume. The Bible says that the, the smell of it just filled the house. So you see a sacrifice that she's making. We have to recognize as Christians that sacrifice is one of the things that characterizes authentic devotion to Jesus. It is sometimes, and very often in fact, going to cost us to follow Christ. That doesn't just mean monetarily that it's going to cost us, but in other ways as well, that it's not always easy to follow Jesus. And I think that's one of the challenges we have in our modern culture here in Alabama, here in the Bible Belt. Uh, one of the challenges we have, I think, is that oftentimes we see devotion to Jesus as just sort of one more thing in life. Just one more thing. I go to work, I love my, try to love my family well, we do this, we do that, and we love Jesus too. Sometimes we miss the fact that our devotion to Christ is what ought to inform all that we do and that it requires sacrifice follow Jesus. But you see something else here happening. You also see humility. You also see humility. 
You see, in this time, the only sort of person that would get involved with anybody's feet would be a servant. And even in our modern culture and society, uh, we're not particularly into feet. We get that, right? We understand. Feet are not the area that we like to focus on. You know, we shake hands. We don't rub each other's feet or anything like that. We want to be real careful. People are kind of grossed out by feet. But here we see Mary demonstrating the humility of a servant by anointing the Lord's feet. And on top of that, not only do we see humility, we also see self-forgetfulness. We see a disregard for her own, um, her own worthiness and a disregard for keeping up appearances and airs because the Bible says that she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this is the sort of thing that we kind of miss, the idea of, of her acting like a servant, because we don't act like servants in our culture. It's not a natural thing to do. We don't, we don't often do that sort of thing, and we certainly don't recognize the reality that it was very rare and, and really sort of an act of almost immodesty or just impropriety for her to let her hair down in public. Very rarely would a Jewish woman in this time let her hair down in public? And so here's a woman who is anointing the feet of Jesus, and on top of that, she is rubbing, uh, wiping his feet with her hair. There's a sort of self-forgetfulness to this. There's a lack, it seems, of dignity in the act. As she is fainting, she is becoming a servant. She's anointing his feet. And so we recognize then that that's the precise sort of thing that a devotion to Christ ought to do in our lives. It ought to lead us to sacrifice and it ought to lead us to humility. You know, the great oxymoron of the age is a Christian with a puffed out chest. You know, we, we, we forget who we are, don't we? We forget what God has done for us. We forget what we're capable of, which is nothing spiritually without Jesus. And something else I, I fear is that we want to serve Jesus up until the point that it impacts our reputation. You see, so often our walk with Christ in our culture and society is a good thing for our reputation, right? Oftentimes you hear people say, you know, you know, he just loves the Lord. He does this and he does that. Or, you know, she just really loves the Lord. She does this or she does that. But, but listen, when you start taking it a little too seriously, it starts to impact your reputation negatively, right? He's just one of them holy rollers. You know, I, he used to be kind of a normal guy, but he just really got into religion there for a while. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to be fanatics or anything like that, but we must have a serious devotion to Christ and we must be willing to sacrifice our reputation for it. And, and I think it's going to increase as our society continues to secularize that following Christ may cause you to lose some of your reputation. Self-forgetfulness, self-dishonor self in so many ways may become a necessity to be a Christian in the times to come. You see, Judas... Judas missed the reward of this devotion because he simply wanted to get some extra money. At this point, you know, we don't think Judas has gone to a full betrayal, but I think we're starting to see the signs that, Jesus, that Judas is having a hard time recognizing who Jesus really is because of a concern for the things of this world. He sells Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. Here we see that he... He wants to rob Christ of this act of devotion. 
in order to steal money from, from the coffers. Are we missing the reward of knowing Christ? The reward of devotion to Jesus because of practical concerns? We're so worried about our wallet and our pocketbook. We're so worried about who we are and how we look that we're missing the reward of knowing Jesus, the reward of devotion to Christ. We ask him questions like, why would that person give away so much to the Lord? Why would those people sacrifice the comforts of home to take the gospel to the nations? I've got several friends who are missionaries, and they'll talk about going overseas. And so often, do you know what the question that people ask them is? Well, are you taking your kids with you? And what are they saying when they ask that question? They're saying, why would you want to put your kids through this? Are you really going to give up the comforts of home to go to the nations? Guys, are we missing the reward of devotion to Jesus by being concerned about practical and worldly things? I hope not. Don't miss the supreme worth of Jesus. Why settle for these gifts when he would give himself to us? Here's the second point this morning. Don't miss the life altering truth of Jesus. Don't miss, is our second point, the life-altering truth of Jesus. Verses 9 and through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing on Jesus. And so as this crowd gathers, what you see happening is people are coming to see Jesus, but they're also coming to see Lazarus. They've heard that Lazarus is in town, and they want to see Lazarus. And so for that very reason, the chief priests decide, they've already decided that they want to put Jesus to death. Now they've decided that they want to kill Lazarus as well. They'll do anything to make sure that the evidence of who Jesus is would be eradicated. You see, they finally get what they said they'd been looking for. They'd said that what they'd been looking for was proof from God that Jesus was from God. That's what they would say. Tell us the truth. Are you from God? They were wanting, they were seeking proof. They were seeking signs. And guess what they got? One great sign, didn't they? A man had been in the grave for for several days and Jesus raised him from the dead. And now that they finally got the proof that they said they wanted, what do they want to do? They want to destroy the proof rather than embrace Jesus. They'll do anything to be able to avoid the truth. So often in our own hearts and lives, we are exactly the same way. Are we ready to embrace the truth of who Jesus is? Are we ready to stare face to face with the life-altering truth of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this question. Have you been struggling with faith in Jesus Christ? And some of you, listen, I understand. I, I, I say this a lot. I'm I'm not naturally a man of faith. I'm a natural skeptic. It's one reason why I believe salvation belongs to the Lord. If I was left to my own devices, I'd be 
arguing atheism with people on the internet. You know, I'd be on there on these skeptic websites or something. But instead, Jesus Christ with the truth of the gospel has gripped my life and I can't let go. I believe it's true. So I understand if you struggle with faith, it's not something that comes naturally to me. I understand and I'm not one of these going to say, what kind of dummy doesn't believe in Jesus? I understand. I understand. But let me ask you this question. What's really preventing your unbelief? What is it that's really standing between you and Jesus? Have you, have you squared with what it is? Have you really got a hold of what's preventing you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you really investigated who Jesus is? You, you may be like this, and I've met a lot of people that are. you got a list of questions, and if God would only answer those questions, the Lord would only send answers to those questions, then I would finally believe. I sat down with somebody one time with a list of those, and I said, man, I've asked the same questions. Here are my answers. We got about through about 75% of them, and I said, well, what is it? He said, I think I've probably got some more. Finally, it dawned on me, and I think it finally dawned on him. It's not, it wasn't about the questions. If it was really about the questions, you'd be looking for answers to the questions. Have you really investigated who Christ is, or are you just hoping you can ignore who Jesus is or kill who Jesus is, keep it out of your sight, keep it out of your mind? Are you deep down inside hoping it isn't true, wanting any way to get out from the reality of who Jesus is? Because here's the truth. You cannot miss the truth of who Jesus is, for it will change your life. You can ignore it all you want. You can try to kill it all you want. They could kill Lazarus all they want, but the reality is one day they would have to own up to the fact that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Today I ask you the question, what prevents you from believing in Jesus? Why are you missing even now the life-altering truth of Jesus? Now listen, I'll I, I, for one, am the kind of pastor who will take your doubts seriously. And so I don't care if you're watching on TV. I, I don't care if you're watching online. I don't care if you're watching this six months later if you're, or if you're here right now. And I don't care if you grew up in this church and you've been too ashamed to tell anybody that you struggle with faith. You come talk to me. We'll talk about these things. I'd love to work with you through these things. I'd love for you to see and embrace the life-altering truth of who Jesus is. And here's the reality. These Pharisees were wanting power and control, and they wanted to keep the system they had. All the while, God offered them freedom by giving Him control, and they didn't want Christ. They didn't want a Lord. Could that be what you're running from today? Could that be what you're struggling with today? Could it not be possible that it's not so much intellect as it is being in charge don't miss the life altering truth of Jesus because if he's the sort of man who is also divine who's able to raise the dead and whom God has made alive even now brothers and sisters he has a claim on our lives here's a here's the last point third point this morning is this don't miss the true mission of Jesus. Don't miss the true mission of Jesus. Verses 12 through 19. It's what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches out of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Here's the reality. There was a big difference between what the people thought Jesus was and what the people thought Jesus' mission was and what the true mission of Jesus was. There was a difference. There was a divide there. There's a great divorce between these two realities. Here's what the people thought. They they hear that this is a man who's raised someone from the dead and that he's coming to Jerusalem. And so what they think, and even I think what the Pharisees think is, oh boy, here we go again. You see, the leaders are worried that the Romans are just going to crush another rebellion and that they're going to lose the good thing they've got going. And the people are thinking, this is a populist movement. They're excited. They're thinking, finally, this is the kind of leader who can fight our battles for us. We've been looking for someone who can come throw off the Romans. The Maccabees have already thrown off the Seleucids. Let's see it happen again. And so they go and they get palm branches. And they get these palm leaves that at this point in Israel's history had become a symbol of national identity. In fact, one of those Maccabees who during the intertestamental period between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament had, had fought battles against pagan rulers who had ruled over, over Israel. They, as they fought battles and won battles, people would have palm branches waving these palms. And, and on different coins that were struck during that time, there were palms on there. And so these palm fronds had come to represent Jewish identity, a national identity and so as Jesus is entering Jerusalem they are waving these palms saying here comes our king they are giving messianic praises they are looking back to the old testament and they are modifying these verses to apply it to a king who would rule today even the king of Israel they said and so as he's entering into Jerusalem what they're expecting is a renewal of the kingdom promises of God to Abraham right It's not all bad. God promised that they would be God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so they are expecting this man to come in and to be prophet and priest and king. They're expecting him to carry the mantle of David, to overthrow Rome and to restore the monarchy as it needs to be restored. They are expecting again to be God's people in God's place and God's rule. They're expecting a political military leader. But what do they get? They get a humble man riding not on a war horse, but riding on a donkey, fulfilling the scriptures, but not in the way they thought. They get a man who's riding on a donkey, hearing cries out of God, save us, hearing cries and praises to God because he's entering into Jerusalem. And mere days later, some of these same voices we pursue will be yelling out, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Rather than getting 
the political ruler they thought they were getting. They were getting a humble man riding a donkey. And ultimately, as he enters Jerusalem, knowing that he will be soon put outside the gate as the scapegoat of the people's sin, crucified at Golgotha, embracing his own death, having been anointed by Mary there as both king and lord. He is entering in knowing that what it takes to overthrow the world order and to create the dawning of a new kingdom is for him to suffer the wrath of God at the cross. He is going to his death. Don't you see that as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, everyone around him has expectations that are way too low. Way too low. You see, their idea is that their biggest problem is Rome. Their idea is that their biggest need is to go back to the way things were. Their understanding and idea of the way that God would fulfill His promises were small and paltry compared to what God was really doing. Jesus, in His own way and through His own mission, is accomplishing more than these folks could ever ask or imagine dream. Jesus knows he is going to his burial. He knows that this anointing that he received was anointing, we learn in verse 7, for the day he dies. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the mission of Christ will cost you everything, but it will return blessings tenfold in his kingdom. You will lose your life, but by doing so, you will gain it. It will seem at times like you're losing every gift that God has given you, but oh, how you'll know the giver. Oh, how you'll relate to the giver. Look to Jesus, who is triumphantly entering the city of God, not simply to overthrow the Romans, but to remake God's world anew. Look to Jesus who is conquering all the nations of the world which he will rule the Roman Empire included by being nailed to a Roman cross. Look to Jesus who will not just satisfy the felt needs of the people around him but will address the deepest needs of their heart the removal of their sins by his death. Look to Jesus who is humbly riding on a donkey to the death that you and I deserve. Brothers and sisters, don't miss His worth. Don't miss what He deserves. Don't miss His truth. Don't miss His mission. Don't miss out on Jesus. Don't miss out on who He is. Hear the words of John, but remember the words of Augustine. If you seek for anything better, you will do wrong to him and harm to yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would willingly give himself to you. Oh brother, oh sister, even now, in this very moment, Jesus stands ready and waiting to give himself to you. Don't settle for the voices around you that are telling you 
God really loved you, if God really loved you, He'd give you this and this and this and this. When God stands offering you Himself. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never met Jesus for the first time, I, I want you today to repent of your sins, turn to God in faith through Jesus Christ, and I believe He will save you. I believe He will give Himself to you if you'll give yourself to Him today. And second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I've just not been living these things out like I should. I'm missing out on these truths and therefore I'm missing out on the power of God and I'm missing out on the comfort and peace of the gospel in my life. This altar is open to you. If you want me to pray for you, pray with you. I am here for you this morning. You just come down in just a moment. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. Here at First Baptist Church, we're certainly not a perfect church, but we will love you and care for you the best we can. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I thank you for his gospel. And God, I thank you for this opportunity we have today to gather together as your people. God, under your name, by your grace and for your glory. And God, if there's anyone here who's got business to do with you, Lord, I pray that they won't miss Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. I pray that they'll embrace you through your Son today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.